during next week, you'll only have one chapter. So kind of remember that, but kind of start working on it a little earlier this time so it doesn't sneak up on you. Um, today we're going to look about God being a just God, and because of that, when he gives his children these laws as they go into the promised land, these laws will teach them about justice and will reflect God's justice to the nations around them. And I thought a lot about justice, and I think we have this idea that everything needs to be fair in life from the time we're a little girl. Like, you can all probably remember saying at some point, that's not fair as a little girl. You can probably remember saying as a grown-up, that's not fair. You can probably remember thinking that yesterday. That's not fair. We think in our hearts we've got this idea that life is going to be fair. And I had a a wise friend teach me this uh, many years ago when my little boy and girl were little. Now they're not. And uh, they said, okay, if you have one candy bar and you want to split that candy bar, if the mom splits the candy bar, they are going to find that there's a millimeter off in one side of the candy bars compared to another. And you will hear those words, that's not fair. And so my friend said, here's what you do. You let the kids cut the candy bar in half. And so the one who cuts the candy bar cuts it. The other child gets to pick which half they want. Okay, think about that a minute. One cuts, the other child picks. So you will soon see that your one child becomes a mathematical genius. As they cut that candy bar perfectly, with perfect precision, in half, it was a great thing to learn. I'm passing it on to you, young moms. Children want things to be fair. Grown-ups want things to be fair. But the answer to the comment, that's not fair, will always have to be, that's right. The world is not fair because it's filled with fallen people. It's filled with people who are selfish, who are evil. It's filled with businesses and corporations and families that will often overlook, cheat, steal, forget, leave out, blame. And justice will not be apparent. We look for justice, but we don't see it. I've read this great story of this man who was really excited because he got up early on a Saturday. He wanted some time alone. It was like 5 a.m. And so he goes downstairs. He pours himself a cup of coffee, opens up the paper. He's only reading for a couple minutes, and he hears his little five-year-old coming down the stairs. And he's like, it's too early. Go back to bed. And she's like, I'm not tired. So she comes downstairs. He tries to get her to go to bed. She's not going to go to bed. So he thinks of this great idea. There's a picture of the world in the newspaper. And so he cuts it into a few pieces, hands his little daughter tape and the puzzle pieces, and says, go make the world right. Put the world back together. And he's thinking, okay, i got some time now to enjoy my coffee, read the paper. He sits back down. He starts reading. Two minutes later, his little five-year-old's back at the table. She's got the world all taped back together. He says, how in the world could you get the world put together right so quickly? She said, well, there was a picture of a man on the back of it. (laughs) And when I got the man right, the world became right. Only in the man Jesus Christ 
will our world one day be perfectly just and perfectly right. Look at Acts 17. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Meanwhile, while we live in this fallen world, he teaches us some things about justice so we will reflect God's justice in an unjust world. That's one of our jobs. And I think it's great to know we don't have to be overwhelmed by injustice. We even talked about Martha's uh, issue with Shelby today. And we don't have to be overwhelmed by those things because we know we are led by a just God. And that makes all the difference in the world. Look on the top of your outline. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. We never face people who don't know the Lord on our own power and strength, or all by ourselves, Like we talked about this morning in the praise time, God is always with us. And this is a truth the Jews needed to learn, because here they are on the border of the promised land, about to face these enemies, and they needed to be reminded they would be led by a just God. Look at Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them, because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. When you're about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, Hear, O Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not be terrified or give way to panic before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes for you to fight for you against your enemies and to give you victory. The battles that Israel was about to step into would be called holy wars because they were God's judgment against the wicked nations of Canaan. And he'd given these nations time to repent. He'd given them time to turn to him. They knew about the God of Israel. They heard about the parting of the Red Sea. Don't you think that news spread pretty quick? The parting of the Red Sea. They were soon about to hear about the Jordan River parting when the people would cross into their land. Another huge miracle. They knew that God had defeated many powerful nations. They knew of the strength and the power and the majesty and the sovereignty of this God called Yahweh. But they had rejected him. Instead, they had chosen to live a perverted lifestyle filled with false gods and idolatry. I thought it was interesting. I was remembering when Moses died, Joshua sent some spies into Jericho to kind of check out the land. I don't know if you remember that story. And they go to Rahab the harlot's house. And listen what she says to these people from Israel. I know the Lord has given you our land. And because of that, great fear has fallen on us. All who live in our country are melting in fear. We heard how he dried up the waters in the Red Sea. We know of the nations you've already destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted within us. 
and our courage failed because of you. And listen to this. And then she said, for the Lord, your God, is God of the heaven and of the earth. And now, guess what? Here he is, ready to judge a rebellious nation. So as uh, they face this rebellious nation, the children of God, this is what they see. Horses, chariots, great armies, fortified cities, all of which they did not have. How would they go into that land with courage? How can we go into a fallen world with the same kind of courage? When we have maybe family members or people at work or in the community or in politics who have their own resources of money and television and movies and uh, Hollywood and big names... And I want to say, I'm not speaking about people who don't know God. I'm speaking about people who have rejected God and are antagonistic to the things of God and the followers of God. In our country, we don't face persecution that a lot of other countries are. It could happen one day. These are good things for us to remember today. But you may face persecution in other ways. You may have family members or or people in your life that are angry that you're a God follower and it divides your family. It can be demoralizing. They can be sarcastic. They might like to argue, humiliate. It can make your job miserable. You might be passed by for positions of leadership. You may be the brunt of jokes. If you aren't, praise God for that. If you are, we can learn some principles from what they did when they were in front of their enemies. And we can also remember this is... uh, a possibility in my life, and the closer Christ comes to return, I think the more these things will grow in our lives. Jesus said, expect this. Look on your verse sheet at John 15. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own, and as it is, you don't belong to this world. I've chosen you out of the world. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So first, here's what we can learn from the verses we read. We remember on your outline God's past faithfulness in our lives to find courage to face difficulties in the future. In these verses, Moses is saying, hey, you came from Egypt. Remember? Remember they had horses and chariots? Didn't God cast their horses and chariots into the sea? In fact, it's really interesting. If you get historical records of Egypt at that time, it actually shows how the Egyptians had a lot of outposts and faraway places where they had a lot of their people. They called all the men back from those distant outposts in Egypt. Why would they do that? sort of losing their boundaries and their territory. Because they did that at the same time that the Red Sea swallowed up the men and the chariots and the horses, and Egypt needed their men back because they were low on men. That is a historical record that we have. Hadn't God proven stronger than the strategies of the enemy and Doesn't he prove stronger than the strategies of the enemies in our lives? When we remember how God delivered us and protected us, when we've been in the presence of enemies or God's enemies, we believe 
God is just. We can rest. And justice will eventually win. It might not win right here, but justice will eventually win. I can leave this in the hands of a just God. So we go forward in courage. And I thought about all the stories of men and women who loved God, who obeyed God, but maybe didn't see justice in their lifetime. And in the book of Hebrews, they are called people of faith. We think about, let's look at Hebrews 11. It says all these people were still living by faith when they died. Sarah and Abraham and those people. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. They admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. Maybe think definitely of Jim Elliott. You all know the story probably of the man who was called to the Alka Indians and um, invested tons of prayer and time flying by, dropping them presents, dropping them food. And then the day came when they landed that plane to meet these Indians who had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they were immediately killed by these Indians. And we look at that story and think, where is the justice? But I don't think Jim Elliott would have said that. Because later on, lots more people came, including his own wife, Elizabeth Elliot. And today, there's an entire people group that serve and walk and follow God because of the sacrifice and the efforts of Jim Elliot. I always like to think about John the Baptist. He served God. He ate locusts. He lived in a desert. He dressed in camel's furs. How fun was that? His whole life, and then when Christ comes on the scene at the whim of a young girl, he loses his head. And you think, where's the justice? But John the Baptist would not have said that. He would have said, justice will eventually win. We can die sometimes waiting for that, but we believe and know we serve a just God. Secondly, we let God fight our battles. I love it that he has the priest come before the people. Wouldn't that be fun if they had a bunch of priests come before armies today to say, hey, don't forget, you're not the one fighting this battle. This is God's battle. They said this, the Lord your God is the one who goes before you to fight for you and bring you victory. And we forget that in this fallen world sometimes. And when we do, these verses tell us great fear takes over in our hearts that can lead to actually being paralyzed and stopping what we're supposed to do. And then sometimes when we panic, when we're in the, in the presence of people who oppose God, we start acting like them. And we get defensive and we get loud and we start arguing. And that isn't what God calls us to do either. If we believe he's the one fighting the battle, we rest and see the work that he's doing before us. When Jesus was about to give his life on the cross, he prayed for his disciples, he prayed for us, and all who would become his followers. Look what he prayed in John 17. My prayer isn't that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. He knew we would be living in a world that we can't call our home. He knew we would be in the world, but not of the world. And so here he's praying for our protection 
because he knew we would face opposition, sometimes hostility, and he's saying, it's God's fight. I've prayed over you. I thought about Psalm 23, that wonderful line that says, you have prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. That's about rest. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In the midst of my enemies, you provide everything I need. I will rest in that. I will let you fight the fight. Thirdly, we fulfill our responsibilities at home and in the battlefield. These next verses we're not going to read talk about the soldier who just bought a house or he just planted a vineyard or he just married a wife and these men were to be exempt from service. And here's what we can learn about that. First of all, to exempt these men was a statement to say it's not going to be about numbers of people that's going to overcome this enemy in the land. It's not about numbers. It would depend on the presence and the power of God. And that the best possible army would be wholly committed to God and have absolute confidence that he would be fighting the battles and they would rest in that. So I think these three categories of exemptions, they were not criticisms. I think they were exemptions of compassion. And tell us a lot about God. God's not only concerned with how his people act in the battlefield, he's concerned if they fulfill their responsibilities in the home and in the places that he gives them. Israel needed to have success not only in war, they needed to also have success in building the future nation that he had promised them. They were going to live in the land they were fighting for, and so they would be responsible to work it and make it profitable and make it prosperous and make it fruitful. And building homes, marriages, building, uh, planting orchards would all be a part of uh, growing and developing that gift of land that God had given them. So if those things ceased, family life, marriage, land, and build, then the wars would be fruitless because there would be no nation being developed there in any case. So what we see here is that the aspects of the normal life in Israel actually took precedence over this idea of requirements of the army. But again... They could not walk away. They could not do these things if they didn't hold in their heart the conviction that it is God who will be going before us to fight the battle. I have this other job that he's called me to do back home. I think about the time that uh, Ted had an example of a woman who was a single woman. I think she had seven children. And she went to her pastor and said, God has called me to the mission field overseas. And the pastor said, you know, I don't, I don't think he would do that. I don't think he would ask you to walk away from these responsibilities that you have in the home. It was never God's intention to neglect family life, to neglect the land in order to go off to war. Fourthly, on your outline, we overcome fear with faith for the sake of others in the fight. I liked this exemption because um, this is where they say if you are afraid, you need to go home. 
This exemption is about realizing we are part of a bigger community. We are God's children. We have a responsibility to each other. Deuteronomy 28 tells us this. The officers shall add, Is any man afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home, so his brothers will not become disheartened too. I've mentioned before that my sister is a Young Life Regional Director in L.A., and it cracks me up because she's definitely um, not the athletic type, and now she's older than me, so she's a a middle-aged woman, and she's out there in Colorado doing these ropes courses with the kids. I mean, I don't, I don't remember Dawn signing up to do one sports activity her entire life, but she would call me on the phone and say, I had to walk on a rope and jump into the air and catch this ring that was just hanging in the air. And you know what? I don't think she could do it, but who is she looking at? All the other leaders who are doing it, who don't want to do it either. They're doing it for these kids that they've brought with them, that they're loving them into the Lord and telling them about the kingdom of God. And these kids love it. And when they see their leaders up there, it just endears them to what they have to say to them. But I can guarantee you, if all the leaders just huddled together afraid, ministry would not happen. We have to have that responsibility for each other. And you can probably think of times you've been in a little bit of frightening situations and the faces of other Christians have given you courage by the faith that you see. That's our job. We are supposed to wear those kind of faces for each other. Fifthly on your outline, we strive for purity when in the territory of God's enemies. We read in Deuteronomy 23 about the soldier who's away from home. He's encamped near the enemies of God, and he is taking lots of precautions to maintain purity in his camp and cleanliness. Look at 23.14. For the Lord your God moves about in your camp to protect you and to deliver your enemies to you. Your camp must be holy so he will not see among you anything indecent and turn away from you. What a great promise. When we are in enemy territory, God is there. He's moving around with us. It says here to protect us. So if we have grown lazy and sinful, then it says he has to turn away from us. Now that's frightening. To be in the presence of the enemies of God and know that you've been so sinful that God has actually had to turn away from you and you are facing them on your own strength, that's something to be frightened about. And guess what? Every time, have you noticed this? Every time we sin, the enemy loves to make a mockery out of it and accuse God of it. Our sin, they equate with our God who is just. We have to make sure that doesn't happen. The Jews were to treat their camp like they would treat their home because a holy lifestyle doesn't begin in enemy territory. It begins in our own home. When these other nations would leave, these idol-worshiping nations, when they left a place, they said goodbye to their gods. If they couldn't carry them with them, they thought they were gone. They had to leave them behind. Only the nation of Israel knew that our God 
goes with us everywhere we go. We are never apart from him. So when they are at home or when they are in the enemy territory, they should be holy and pure so that the enemy sees it. So the enemy gets to see what God looks like. Because when we are in their presence, we do not look like them. We are pure. We are holy. We represent a holy God. And when there is purity in our lives, it reminds us that God is present in the very midst of it. And it reminds our enemies of that as well. Now, approaching those who are distant from God, God planned for the Jews to treat the land of Canaan differently from the lands that were outside the land of Canaan. Different nations that didn't belong to these nearby nations. In Canaan, the Jews were to not leave anything alive that was breathing. And there are two reasons for that. You read one of them because the Canaanites would lead Israel into these detestable, perverted practices, including sacrificing their own children to a God that's no God at all. But the second reason is Israel was God's instrument of judgment against the land of Canaan. Remember we talked about they had rejected. They'd rejected the stories. They knew who he was. They turned their back on him. Israel was to be God's instrument of judgment. But he had told them earlier, if you obey me in the land, I'm, I'm going to give you more land outside of your territory. These are distant nations. And the very first thing they were to do when they approached a distant nation was to offer them peace. And if the people accepted, then they would become laborers for Israel. But I think there's a principle for us here. We looked at those who don't want to have anything to do with God. But what about lost people who just don't know God? These people probably didn't hear the stories like the Canaanite people did, or not as much. And on your outline, our job is to come as ambassadors of peace. Ephesians 6 tells us, have your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So we approach the lost. Inside of us, we have the hope of the world in our hearts. We know what it means to know God personally. We know what it means to have eternal life promised to us. We come ready to share with the lost that these can be realities for them. And so if we come in peace and not in judgment, we will open their ears to these realities. Their hearts will be open to the truths that we have to share with them. And then we bring these new people into the family of God, no matter what kind of people they were. We read about the um, Israelite. If he found a wife in these distant nations, he could choose to marry her. And once he married her, we read how she would cleanse herself and then she would take off her old garments and set them aside. And I think that was really all symbolic of, I am leaving the past behind because you are connecting me to the people of God. I've got a new life to start. And we, our responsibility is to embrace them into that new life. Once someone's found Christ, their identity is not connected to their past. 
Look at 2 Corinthians 5. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. And then we imitate our just God. Israel had the Lord God as their king. They had a wonderful land for their home. They had the loving laws of God to guide them. But they were still a people with a sin nature. They still would have to deal with man's inhumanity to man. And God knew that. And we saw that last week they didn't have this elaborate police force. We talked about that. They had the judges and the elders who had those responsibilities. So God, in his great wisdom, creates these cities of refuge so that he could demonstrate to his people how to behave in a just manner. Look at Deuteronomy 19. When the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land he's given you, and when you've driven them out and settled in their towns and houses, then set aside for yourselves three cities centrally located in the land the Lord your God has given you to possess. Build roads to them. Divide into three parts the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, so that anyone who kills a man may flee there. Now Israel had already established three cities of refuge on the east side of the Jordan, Now that they will be on the west side of the Jordan, they're supposed to establish three more cities. And you could be in any tribe and go to any city, whatever one was closest to you, if somehow you were unintentionally involved in the death of another person. And uh, tradition holds that there were signs at all the crossroads that were be pointing to the nearest city of refuge. And they kept those roads clear and well-maintained. So everybody knew exactly where to go if they needed to. God wanted to make it easy for the innocent person to be protected. And specifically from the vengeance of angry people, but more specifically, you probably read, from the avenger of blood. And that would be the closest living relative who um, would take it upon himself as representative of the family and to protect the family name to deal vengeance with someone who killed his nearest relative. Uh, I thought about this when I was doing it because I had sort of an example that would have almost fit this. We years ago put in this sprinkler system, and we had these two guys that we just thought were so fun and nice, and they were putting in the sprinkler system. Well, one of them was diabetic, and he needed to eat, and he didn't eat. And, you know, they can't always think straight. So all of a sudden, I hear this screaming in the back door. It was like a movie. It was like the scary movie. I hear him screaming in the back door, and the one man is standing on my door with glass, with his bloody hands, just smashed against the glass, yelling our names. And he had accidentally, you know, you got those giant sledgehammers and you're doing like, he had done this and whacked his partner dead center in the forehead and he is lying in the grass. You could see this concave in the center. Now, he probably, uh, if he had died, that would be, in this story, his relative would come looking for that guy with the diabetes who didn't take care of that who accidentally killed his nearest relative. 
fortunately, just to let you know, um, that was really scary. <laughs> it was, and we visited him in the hospital. He is totally fine now. But this is the funniest part. He told us, I, I think I'm smarter now. <laughs> so... They were our friends. We were glad that went well. But that's a very, that's the exact kind of thing they're talking about in these stories. If that man had died, that other man, it would not have been his fault. But because we are sinful, his friends and relatives might just overtake that guy and kill him. And God does not want that to happen. Look at 1910. Here's why. Do this so that innocent blood will not be shed in your land. This is the land God is giving you as your inheritance, and you will not be guilty of bloodshed. This promised land that they've heard about for years and years and years should not be stained with innocent bloodshed from sinful, vengeful people. So people could flee to these cities. They would have a a true trial. And if the man was innocent, he could live in that city until the high priest died. If he chose to leave the city before that time, he would be still open for people to grab him and take his life. So that would not be wise of him. But if someone was found guilty and fled to the city and they realized he was guilty, the the city that he left could call him back have a trial, and pronounce the correct judgment on him. He would face death from the avenger of blood, the same individual. So in these stories of the city of refuge, we realize God expected his people to be concerned about justice. He did not expect them to be people of vengeance, and he did not want to see innocent bloodshed. Another way he was teaching them how to behave was this more than one witness. Look at verse 15, chapter 19. One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And we can see the wisdom in that very easily. In fact, both Jesus and Paul, they applied this wisdom when it came to church discipline. Someone accused of sin in the church. But then it goes on to say there might be a situation where only one man accuses. And then they were to go, remember last week we talked about the central sanctuary, the high court, where the priest would be there and a judge, and they would stand before them. And this was a place where God met with the priests and the judges. They would seek God to see if this person, the one person that's accusing, is being truthful or not. And if he was found to be lying, he would face the very punishment he was trying to have put on the man he accused, who was actually innocent. When God's people knew about this rule, it kept them from accusing people falsely and reminded them of God's justice. To imitate God's justice today means we protect the innocent and we punish the guilty. And as Christians... Out of any other people group in our country, we should be the ones that work hard, give our money, pray, uh, go to to protect um, those who are unborn, the orphan, the widows, the poor, the innocent people that suffer in our land today. And then we should also strive for a judicial system that is... um, 
just where the punishment fits the crime. Verse 21 says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Think about this. In 18th century England, if a child, a poor hungry child was caught stealing bread, they could be imprisoned for the rest of their life. If a man picked a pocket of someone else, he could be hung there in the city before everyone. The punishment was evil and did not fit the crime. We are supposed to um, support fair um, punishment to those who are guilty. And then can you imagine what it would be like if we served and followed a God who was not just? which I want to say, every other God that you hear out there, they are not just. We have people wringing their hands, trying to do everything they can to stay good enough each day so they can have eternal life and not be judged. And only we Christians don't have to do that. But what if God was capable of error so that we would be forever striving to be good enough? always wanting to know him, never able to, insecure in what our future holds, and we would live in great fear. We would live in fear because we would be guilty. We would have the great accuser, Satan, pointing a finger at us and saying, guilty, guilty of sin. And it would be up to us to try to erase our guilt, and it would be impossible. But our God does no wrong, and because he's holy, he knew we could not approach him on our own merit, and so he sent his son as a refuge for us to flee to. And I think he set out signs all throughout our life at every crossroad pointing the way to this refuge through his son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 6.18 says, We have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. On your outline, God has provided a refuge for those who are guilty of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We can approach God. Because Jesus, our refuge, has taken our sins upon himself. When we flee to him, we receive new righteous garments. We set aside our old stained worldly garments and we put on the righteousness of Christ. And we don't need two or three witnesses to see us go from guilty to innocent. We only need one. And that is God and God himself. It is his testimony Look at 1 John 5. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has God's testimony in his heart, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and that life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. On your outline, God has given a testimony about his Son that brings life to those who believe it. And so my hope is we remember we stand and live our lives on an upright God. He is a rock. And we live victoriously because of him. Let's pray.
We praise you, Father. You are great. You are good. You are just. You are upright. You plan every detail of our life to reflect that, and you have brought us into your kingdom in that same way. We just want to give you all praise for that and tell you we love you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Lynn. I have a number of announcements today. The first one is it is time or coming up time for the spring retreat. It is April 3rd through 5th. It's at the Marriott Las Colinas.